This is, uh, I'm very enthused about this. I did not pick the book of Esther, but I very enthusiastically supported us studying it. So because I didn't pick it, I get to brag on it a little bit. I think this is a really, really nice, uh, refreshing change up from studying Mark. And I think um, the idea of putting it in between the two halves of Mark was excellent too because we're not necessarily digging through uh, quite as, as sound, in-depth, uh, intricate doctrine as, as when you have Jesus Christ himself teaching. It's a narrative. And there's ton to, tons to learn through it. Don't get me wrong, and we're going to learn from it. But it's an opportunity to, to sit back and um, with other books of the Bible like Mark and others, sometimes you have to literally look at every single word and understand its key meaning. With Esther, sit back and get the flow of it. Get the, uh, the line of thinking, get, what, get what's happening, and then we'll try and draw out some lessons that we can learn uh, through God's provision. Unlike Benji's boring PowerPoint a few weeks ago, he wasn't in here, I was so bummed I wanted to harass him. I've designed probably our most artistic PowerPoint to date. Um, I chose Penelope Cruz for Esther. She was in the movie Sahara, which took place in the Middle East, and Esther was from the Middle East, so I thought it was completely appropriate. <laughs> Jake's mom designed this, and it's, it's very, very nice, so we'll use it with gratitude. Uh, but Esther, if you remember, is a book all about God's providence. God's providence. If it's not officially the key verse, one of the key verses would be Esther 4.14 where Mordecai is talking to Esther and brings up the question, have you considered that this very well may be the point of why you've, you've been called to this? This is uh, for such a time as this, you've been put into place as queen um, for such a time as this. So this whole idea that God sees the bigger picture and God works through the bigger picture. JP did a great job of taking us through all kinds of details about the book, its uniqueness, its history. But again, the main theme is what we focus on this morning. And, and uh, our message could easily be, be titled, as Matthew suggested to me in, a, in an email, as God Plans Ahead. I thought that was cool. God Plans Ahead. So I know we don't often do this, but I'd like to have us read through these two chapters, according to uh, the Bible guy on my phone that reads to me every morning, it should take about eight minutes, so it's not going to break the bank of time. But I want to give you a little exercise while you're doing it. The exercise, and I'll go back, the exercise would be to try and pick out as many details as you can that form this unbelievable web of events. As you're listening, as you're reading through, pick out every circumstance that if it was just a little bit different, it would have changed the whole outcome. It would have adjusted the whole story. And then we'll take a little brainstorming session together to see how many you counted and how many we can sort of summarize. But the bottom line is when you think about the, the fabric of all uh, time and, and space, and you think about all the individual details that seem completely unrelated, the reality is God has them all knit together in an intricate web. Others have described it, Louis Giglio and others have said a mosaic, where you, you have millions of little tiles, and when God puts them together, they form this unbelievable picture of only His design and only His ability. And while sometimes I can only see one of the little mosaics and it may be an ugly looking tile because it's the brown dirt at the foot of the character in the overall picture, it looks ugly, it looks frustrating, it looks discouraging. But if we're willing to trust that God has a bigger plan, a bigger view, then we can accept that and we can function within uh, where he has us. Esther is a great book for that. It's a great narrative. It's a great story to realize this girl didn't have it easy. There was all kinds of heartbreaking things. But when it was all weaved together by the master creator, the sovereign God who's in control of every detail, it forms a beautiful, beautiful picture. Or it forms a very intricate, secure, powerful web 
um, that God will use for His glory. Backing up. So let's look at those verses. I'm putting them on the spot, but do you think you can even pull the uh, Scripture up, put my PowerPoint to the side and pull the Bible up there and we'll look at Esther 1 and 2 together. ESV, because you told me to. I always follow your lead, Matthew. So we'll start in chapter 1. Forgive me for reading briskly, but we'll just look to get the general flow. Mine's still loading. Do you mind starting for us? Thanks. Excellent. Thank you, Matthew. We'll pause there. What's the bottom line? Queen Vashti is now out. Why is that important to our story, to the rest of the book of Esther? Because here comes the queen, right? Esther now 
will have an opportunity to be placed in her place. What are all the details that had to be knit together in order for this to happen? Did you count some of them? Think about it. What if the king went to wanted to have this feast? What if it would have been a different setting, a different length of time, a different guest list? What if he wouldn't have been drunk? What if he wouldn't have had the particular advisors next to him that told him to get rid of the king? What if Vashti would have been in a good mood and came out, right? How many hundreds of details were there that would have changed this whole story? The bottom line is that God not only understands the details, but has a perfect way of knitting those together. And we're going to continue to see that. Let's now go to chapter 2 together. After these things, when the anger of King Hercius was abated, i got to say that better, Asuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the Harlem and Susa, the capital, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconi, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadissa, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as, her own, as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Asursus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shezgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Azurzus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. How many, Joe? How many details did you count? Oh, man. Lots and lots of details. 
unbelievable amounts of tiny little things that seem unrelated, all being knit together, weaved together by God Himself for His own purpose. And later in the book, as we see a purpose laid out and explained, uh, laid out by God, but, but explained by Mordecai as Esther, maybe this is why you exist. Maybe this is why you've been brought to this place to serve God through this act to protect the Jews. And I don't want to steal the thunder of the other speakers who go into that. So instead, we want to just back up and look at this grand tapestry that God has weaved together. So if we can go back to the PowerPoint, I want to examine a couple of things. We know that God does the weaving. But I think what we're going to find is God does the weaving, but we need to humbly submit and be used by Him for His plan. And that doesn't always happen. My heart is not always soft. My heart is not always ready for obedience. My heart is not always ready to follow through with God's plan. And when I get in the way, Scripture seems mysterious but clear that I can actually get in the way of God's will. Now, will He accomplish His ultimate purpose? Absolutely. None of us are needed, are we? Uh, Brother and I were talking about that earlier today. God will use someone else. But I can actually get in the way of God working His master plan. And I can rob glory from Almighty God through my disobedience, my lack of submission, my lack of willingness to say, Your will be done. And thankfully, I think today we're going to see a big contrast to that. Esther and even Mordecai were excellent servants of the Most High to obey and follow the God's plan, follow His leading. And so while the fun part of this is to look at all the millions of details that God has knit together to put Esther in a place of authority, to put her in the, in the office of queen so that he could fulfill his purpose, the message to us, the application to us, the learning opportunity for us is that she was humble, she was ready, she was obedient, she was submissive to God's will. So let's review some of that. This is another one of those details I just wanted to point out. By the time Mordecai and Esther were living there in Susa, the decree had, been, had gone out that, that Jews could return to their own homeland. They didn't have to be there. And yet, for what, whatever reason, God had led them to stay there. I thought that was interesting. The king himself, the king himself got this ball rolling. The king's decisions were the ones to actually put this plan beginning to roll into its place. I thought that was fascinating. We know that this king was powerful. He was rash. He was self-centered. He was wicked. If we're talking about pictures, I almost put Sean Harrington there. If you put Sean, turn your head to the side. looks similar with the pointy beard. But I thought it's fascinating that with a wicked, self-serving, self-centered king, God still used him and directed him to fulfill God's plan. It doesn't matter if you think you're the biggest, baddest person on this planet. If God's going to use you, he's going to use you. Now again, you may be, like this king, totally out of bringing any God the glory through his life and submission and sacrifice. But I just think it's fascinating that one of the most powerful men on the planet was used by God. And it reminds us of a couple of passages, and I'm going to zip forward to them. Exodus 14.8. Look quickly at that verse with me if you could. Exodus 14.8 talks about another ultra-powerful ruler. Do you remember who that was? Pharaoh. Excellent. And the language is very clear in verse 8 of Exodus 14. It says, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. God himself will affect the heart of a ruler. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ezra 7.27 is a little bit more of an encouraging one. It's more upbeat. But Ezra 7, verse 27, 
the people are giving praise for the effect on the king's heart. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And Esther 1.10, back to our passage. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded. And I believe that God was just as much involved in everything that happened through this powerful and rash man to weave it together for his own purpose. God will use us. He might use us in our pride. He might use us in our arrogance. His will will be done. But that doesn't mean that this man was bringing glory to God in any shape or form through his own offering of sacrifice to God. See the difference there? He's a contrast. He's the worst example that God will work through you even when you defy Him. But it doesn't bring as much opportunity for you to glorify God as if we do it as willing willing vessels. So the king was affected. I want to look at Acts 4. Acts 4 uses a key phrase, and this isn't, like I said, a study in the deep theology. This is a a narrative book. But in Acts chapter 4, I think it turns this conversation of discussing this great web and this beautiful mosaic to the harsh reality that God's sovereignty isn't going to be easy all the time. In fact, most times, the weaving and the putting together of the plan is going to be hard. Jesus Christ himself, in this world you will have trouble, he said. You will have trouble. But take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. Acts 4 talks about this same amazing God that works all these plans together. Read that briefly with me. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Who was praying these things? Who was this group of people? Anyone know? What's that? Yeah, Peter, the other apostles, right? This was towards the very beginning of the church itself. And these were the the men and the women who had seen Jesus and seen what he had done. And we're now seeking to follow him. And listen to what he says. He talks about sovereign Lord. What does sovereign mean? Chief. Chief. They were acknowledging that God himself is in charge of every detail. We know that scripture teaches he doesn't do evil, but he allows evil for his own purpose. He allows every detail for a specific reason. And this group of believers, was, they were catching on to this. They were realizing this. And the Lord turned upside down the world through them. This small group of men and women were used by the Lord, I believe, because they started with Sovereign Lord. In their minds and their hearts and their actions, they said, God, you are in charge. You are chief. But... I bring this up because it wasn't a rosy picture, was it? The life of the apostles was not a rosy, easy road. It was filled with suffering. It was filled with persecution. It was filled with discomfort. 
But nonetheless, it was one of the, the most miraculous times of all where the Lord God himself would build his church. And I wanted to point that out because Esther is a feel-good story. Life isn't always a feel-good story, but God is just as in control. He is just as much on the throne. I thought it was interesting in Acts 4, uh, even in those verses we read, what else did God's plan and working knit together? Take a look at it. See if you can find it. The greatest event of all time. Your Savior's death and then later His resurrection. And they talk about this in this very passage of Acts 4. That by God's will, Jesus was allowed to be crucified. He was persecuted. He was rejected. God allowed that. It was part of His plan. It's been called the worst travesty in history, the most injustice of all time. But think about this. If it wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't be here. God's plan is seldom clean and neat and tidy. In our view, it can be tough. It can be painful. It can be hard. But we have to acknowledge His sovereignty. And as I said, Esther's a feel-good story, but there was nothing easy for Esther either. She was an orphan. Her mom and dad had died. There's nothing easy about that. As a young girl, she lost both her parents. And a cousin, some other guy, stepped in. I don't know how well she knew him. I, I don't know how well-trained he was in being a, a parent. But nonetheless, she was in a situation where someone other than her mom and dad was raising her. Her name is Myrtle. And enough is a trial, right? Hopefully none of your mother's names are Myrtle, but it struck me. I think what I learned from this, though, is we have a lot of opportunities that we use to make an excuse for why we're ticked off or why we're bitter or why we're upset or why we're mad at God. I think being angry with God is at an all-time high because for some reason, my heart, your heart, refuses to say, your will be done. I've shared with you that I'm going through some trial, as many of you are. And I think the, the biggest struggle has been, to be, has been um, saying, okay, I'm okay with what's happening. But I'm not frustrated. I'm not ticked. I'm okay with what's happening. I'm not there yet. And that's been a disappointment because I think the quicker we can get to that point where we've accepted what God wants to do and ideally accept it with joy, then I think God will do unbelievable things through our lives. I think Esther had the right perspective. And I can't point to the chapter and verse that says she wasn't bitter, but I don't read anything that would indicate that she was a bitter, angry woman. To the contrary, I see that she had a tender heart that she was teachable, that she was obedient, that she did what was asked of her, and that she was used by God to change history. Now I want to show you an extra-biblical, meaning that this is not from Scripture, but this is a KT theory. Okay, What did they say about Esther's face and form? It's lovely, right? Well, she can't be bitter... Because bitterness is ugly. This is a true story. After 9-11, do you remember the election earlier where Al Gore and George Bush had this hard-fought, down-to-the-wire election and neither of them were going to be happy about the, the outcome? But after it ended and one was president and the other was out, uh, months later at a 9-11 memorial, they showed Vice President Gore an the guy just was a mess. He had gained a lot of weight. He had this scraggly beard. Thankfully, and I'm teasing with these pictures, thankfully he changed that and he got back on the trail and, and he, uh, he kept working along. But it, it reminded me that there's nothing pretty about bitterness, is there? There's nothing attractive about an angry, bitter spirit. 
we read all throughout Esther 1 and 2 that Esther was winning favor with everyone she came in contact with. When's the last time a bitter, angry person won your favor? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And I think the reality is that we have a tendency to be sourpusses. We have a tendency to get down in the dumps and to be self-centered. But I think Ephesians 4 was a challenge to me. And again, I'm not saying that Scripture is saying she was never bitter. I'm sure she had her days. But take a look at Ephesians 4 with me if you would. Verse 22, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corruption, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may be grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. I can't point to a chapter and verse in Esther where God said she was not bitter. I don't get the impression that she was in any shape or form. And I'm certain that God doesn't want me to be bitter. And I'm certain that he doesn't want you to be bitter. And I would challenge you and I would challenge my own heart that we have a tendency to gripe and to grouse and to let roots of bitterness spring up in our hearts and lives. And we're getting in the way of God working through us. And if we want to model Esther, if we want to learn something from Esther, then we'll learn to take the circumstances that are the ugly tiles and the grand picture and we'll learn to accept them with grace. And we'll remove bitterness and anger. And we'll forgive. And we'll get on as a servant of Jesus Christ. I believe she did that. I believe she did that. And I think the absence of bitterness, the absence of a grudge, because her mom and dad were dead, she was in a foreign land, she was being raised by some other cousin. Because of that, I think she was a more useful tool for the Creator. And... There's no doubt she won favor with all she came in contact with. So let's work on that. Let's check our attitude. Let's check our hearts. Do we have any bitterness? Do we have any anger? Do we have any grousing of my circumstances? If I do, I, I think it's only a drain. I think it's negative energy that will pull us down far more than allow us to be used for God himself's work. What else do we know about Esther? Well, she was obedient. She was obedient. Esther 2, verse 10. Take a look at that. There were some other characteristics JP talked about. She was courageous. She had faith. She was wise. But I think that her obedience allowed these other characteristics to be effective. And in Esther 2.10, uh, we can see that while obedience was never probably easy for her, she was consistent in it. Look at it, verse 10 with me. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came, and then you can skip down. Skip, skip, skip. And down towards the bottom it again lays out that not only did Esther obey Mordecai about keeping the secret of that she was a Jew, but it says that Esther had obeyed Mordecai in everything as she grew up. That even when she was young, she had the practice of obeying and honoring the authority in her life. Did God use that? What if she had not been trained for obedience? What if she was not in the the mode of obedience. And she got to be queen, she got to this position, and she let it slip that she was a Jew. What could have that meant for her? Death, out of there. That would have not been an attractive feature in this king's wife and queen. 
But her pattern of obedience all through her life was used by God to accomplish God's purposes. Are we obedient? Are we consistently honoring and obeying what God lays out for us to do? Last couple of days, if you were here, we we, uh, studied self-control. We had a parenting conference. I learned a ton. And one of the key things was on obedience and self-control. And I was bummed he didn't exactly talk about my kids' lack of self-control. Whose self-control did he talk about, brother? Mine. My lack of self-control. God calls us to be obedient, self-controlled servants of His. And Esther was obedient, faithfully, consistently. Not just in the life or death issue, but a pattern throughout her entire life. How are we doing on obedience to God? Well, I can tell you one thing. I think that we can improve. The last couple of days we talked about the instruction manual. The instruction manual. What was the instruction manual? God's Word. God's Word isn't only the instruction manual for parenting. It's the instruction manual for life. When's the last time you read the instruction manual? I glanced at it yesterday. When's the last time we spent consistent time studying the instruction manual to learn what God would have us do through obedience? Jesus Christ Himself said, If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. How do we know what those commandments are if we don't study His Word to learn about what He'd have for us? Take two minutes here. Less than two minutes. Two minutes feels like an eternity in this setting. Take a couple of seconds. And I would urge you to set a goal for this week. And set it small. We learned this yesterday. Set it small. But set a goal for spending time in God's Word. Start start small. One example yesterday was um, get a Bible app on your phone so that when you're driving to work in the morning you can listen to three chapters of the Scripture being read to you. But seriously, take a couple of seconds Write down if you have it. Anita's got her pen. But seriously, determine a goal for taking in God's Word this week. When will I take a step forward? One small step for spending more time in God's Word this week. How's it going to happen? Anyone willing to share? Brad, any ideas come to mind? Oh, Jason, go ahead. Okay. For me, it's as simple as just... uh, obeying when the the reminder pops up on my phone to read my Bible. Do you have one of those? I just hit ignore. Not Can't do that. So uh, I'm going to work to just not hit, hit ignore this week. Start small. Something. If we're going to be obedient servants, we have to know the instruction manual. And the secret of it, if we're abiding in God's Word and God's words abide in, in me, then it's going to be so much easier to be obedient. God's Word literally transforms our heart and mind. It renews us. It changes the way we think. It's not just a book. It's a living, active Word of God. It will change me if I humbly allow it. So let's be more obedient this week. Let's spend time, one small step, towards being men and women of the Word. Mordecai was obedient. I wanted to bring this up just because it was, it was something that was uh, clear. This was a faithful man. A faithful man. Who takes on parenting your, your, what was it, his, your cousin, right? Can you imagine the sacrifice that he made to bring Esther into his home and to raise her? And I think from chapter 2, we see that he wasn't just cavalier about it. It wasn't just as casual. Oh, sure, you can, you can uh, bunk down here. But he was an active, engaged trainer of Esther. 
He was dedicated. Obedience to God requires dedication. And I was challenged in the last couple of days as sort of a side application here that if I'm a parent, that requires enormous dedication. And I thought it was interesting that in uh, Esther chapter 2, while Esther is inside in the care of others preparing, Mordecai could have had a holiday, right? Go do whatever he wants for a change, a little Mordecai time. But what he's, what is he doing? He's outside the palace. He's going by every single day to check on how things are going, to see how he can help. And guess what? Because he was consistent and faithful, the Lord used him. What did the Lord use him for? A couple of biggies. He was feeding Esther advice all the time. Did you notice that? We'll count at least three or four things as we study this book about Esther did exactly as Mordecai said. Because he was there, he was engaged, he was, he was uh, continuing in the active training of Esther. But there was something else towards the end of chapter 2. What was that? Yeah, he was aware, he was alert, and God used him to uncover a plot of two men that wanted to kill the king. He saved the king's life. He saved the king's life because he was alert, he was faithful, he was continuing day, on, day in and day out. Now the great news is at that very moment he saves the king's life and he was elevated to great prominence, right? No. Nothing happened other than the king was saved. Great, but it was just sort of written down in some book and forgotten. That reminded me that there's not always this glorious parade when we obey God, is there? When you're wiping noses and the other the other things as a pa- parent faithfully day in and day out. There's not a parade in your honor every afternoon when you're dog tired at night and you're hitting the pillow ready to get up and do it all over again. It's tiring. But keep at it. Keep at it. Maybe it's not parenting for you right now. Maybe it's another, uh, maybe you're having to work a couple of jobs because God has called you to that. Maybe you're preparing for other things. Maybe you're uh, starting a business or continuing a business. Whatever it is. It's hard work, but press on. Be faithful. Be obedient. Mordecai was. And the cool thing is we'll learn later that uh, for him there was even a little, little blessing while he walked the earth, which is usually a bonus. But obedience is not just for Esther. Those around her were obedient as well, and it was used by God uh, to knit together his plan. Here's where we'll end with this characteristic. I'm convinced Esther had a teachable heart. A teachable heart. Esther 2, verse 9. Do you remember what that talked about? That this eunuch that was in charge told her which beauty products to use, told her how to prepare, told her how to take care of herself. Now she could have easily said, Dude, you're not a woman. You don't know my hair. I'll take care of my own beauty, thanks. You tell me what to say maybe, but I got this covered. Didn't do that. She took exactly his advice. She followed his advice to the letter. She prepared exactly as he instructed her. And then in verse 15, when she was going into her uh, big audition, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihal, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. She was teachable. She didn't rely on her own wisdom. She took the advice of others. And she followed the advice of others. And I think there's a strong message here for my life. We are self-willed people. We want to do it our way. We're not overly teachable. And if we want to be in full service to the king, we have to change that. We have to realize that I don't have the answers. I have very few of the answers. And am I teachable? Am I open to counsel? Am I willing to accept the direction of others? It didn't say that Esther agreed with every beauty product that the eunuch gave her, does it? It didn't say that she had researched every single skin cream that he gave her and and agreed in her own heart that that was what to do. 
She took his advice. She followed his lead. She was teachable. Romans 12.15 has been a powerful, powerful chapter um, when I was in, in uh, high school. I struggled as I do now. I struggled then as well uh, with pride. And in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 15, by the way, what's the beginning of Romans 12? Pre- yeah, present your body a living sacrifice. Present yourself to God for His service. But there's a key in verse 15. Look at it with me. Rejoice. Oops, I'm in the wrong one. It's verse 16. Rejoice. 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. And you know my dad, he's not real subtle. He would show me this verse often. Hey T, don't be wise in your own sight. You're a young buck, you think it, you got it together. Don't be wise in your own sight. Other translations say, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't think of yourself more highly as you ought. We are the kings and queens of thinking that we know best. Don't be wise in your own sight. First Peter 5, 5 through 11. One of the hardest passages to obey, in my opinion. Likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that at the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Is it an accident that the devil resisting you, the devil seeking around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, is right after the charge to humble ourselves? What's the number one tool of the devil? Pride. Pride. And my pride will destroy an opportunity to glorify God through my action in life. We have to clothe ourselves in humility. It is completely contrary to your flesh and your DNA and your makeup to be a humble person. We have to clothe ourselves in humility. Lower myself. Don't think more highly of myself than I ought to. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if we're talking about the devil seeking around, looking whom he can devour, I'm convinced he's looking for the arrogant, the proud, those that are struggling in humility. Because if I'm struggling in humility, I'm not relying on God's strength as much as I should. And then finally, Philippians 2. Powerful, powerful passage. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in yours in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ himself lowered himself. He humbled himself. If it's good enough for the king of the universe, it's good enough for you and me. The chief shepherd is a shepherd of humility. Will I be clothed 
in humility. There's changes that need to take place. Will I be wise in my own opinion? Or will I clothe myself with humility? Esther did that. Why was Esther so successful in the toughest job interview in the entire world? She was obedient. She was teachable. And God used that to change history. God plans ahead. He weaved that web together, all those hundreds of details, brought together in a beautiful mosaic. But because Esther was obedient, teachable, ready for God's use, she not only carried out what he wanted, but she glorified God with results for eternity. Will I change? Will I become more of an obedient, humble servant? Through tough times, through persecution, accepting it, moving on with joy, waiting for God to do unbelievable things. Things that I might not get the parade while I'm still living, but things that He promises are laying up treasures in heaven where no moth or rust can destroy and where you will never regret a life lived for God Himself. Father, we're thankful for this young girl, this young woman, this model of faith that we can look to. I know she had her faults. I know she had times of doubt. We'll see that in chapter 4. But Lord, she was faithful to you. sure seemed like she was taking life in stride, that that she had gone through tough times, but that uh, there was no evidence of bitterness in her life. Instead, she was finding favor with all. She was obedient. She was teachable. That's who I want to be. So Lord, please work in my heart, work in my brothers and sisters' hearts. I think about that one minute that we took to lay out that goal. That one minute, a simple step forward to be in your word more this week. Remind us of that, Lord. Give us faithfulness on a small step so that that can grow and we can become more and more useful to you. We thank you that the victory's been won. We thank you that we're not pushing for a, a, a good eternity, that that is in the bag, that's sealed, that we are in Christ Jesus and protected by Him. It's a brief vapor compared to eternity, but it seems like forever, Lord. It's tough, it's hard, it's rough, and we need Your help. So we turn over to You, our struggles, our cares. We confess our sins to You that we're prideful, strong-willed. And Lord, we need Your Spirit to heal us and to change us and to convict us. And we're thankful that you forgive us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.